Greetings, I'm Dr. Anthony Smith of Alashe Center for Enrichment and welcome to Black Folks Do Therapy, where we endeavor to challenge you to think critically about your mental health and overall wellness. Our goal is to inspire you to align your actions and values so that you might live your life fully 86,400 seconds every single day. We do this in part by asking questions and raising issues that you may not have previously considered. Ultimately, we encourage you to do those things that help you to live your best life consistently, always working towards balance. And welcome to our next episode of Black Folks Do Therapy. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are joined by Dr. Tania Lodge, who is a practicing psychologist in Akron, Ohio, where it was snowing last week. <laughs> and so she's going to talk to us about her um, path of becoming a psychologist and uh, give us some strategies for dealing with the stressors of managing our lives during this time of COVID-19, um, in addition to other things psychology related that she's going to get into and talk about. So we're going to get to know who Dr. Lodge is and have a good time having this conversation here. How are you doing today, Dr. Lodge? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Oh, glad to have you. Glad you could make time to join us. Um, so why don't you just say a little bit about um, your path to becoming a psychologist and, and why that's been important for you? Yes, the path to becoming a psychologist is very interesting because I didn't set out to be a psychologist. No. So some life experiences and work experiences along the way is how I landed here, which I am very grateful and appreciative of. Um, throughout high school, I always thought I was going to go to law school. Mm -hmm. My family, um, it was either you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. That's typically what we hear. You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. But again, at that age, when we think of doctor, we're thinking of medical doctors. Right. Um, so again, it was placed in me um, at an early age that I was going to go to law school, primarily because of my personality and some of the things um, that I was experiencing during that time. My high school elective coursework was all about law and mock trials. Um, and then when I went on to get my undergraduate degree, very similarly, I was um, focused on political science, sociology uh, with a pre-law minor. Um, so, and, and again, I went throughout my undergraduate experience in which I got my bachelor's degree in sociology. I also, again, wanted to apply to law school following that, mm -hmm. but didn't. I was actually encouraged by one of my mentors to pursue a degree in counseling. Yeah. So I went ahead and I pursued a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And I got a job immediately following um, my undergraduate degree where I worked for the county Department of Children and Family Services, where I was um, investigating and providing services to children who had been abused or neglected. Hmm. During that time is when I became aware of some of the disparities related to the resources and, and health concerns and 
social concerns that the African-American community was having. Mm -hmm. So it's to shift as it relates to uh, what I wanted to do about it. And I remember having to testify in court on a regular basis about um, the cases that I was involved in. And just being aware of that experience and the impact that it was having, um, and also listening to other psychologists who had evaluated the children or their families and was coming up with treatment recommendations, um, again, it increased my awareness about some of the disparities as it relates to how the African-American community was disproportionately represented into some of these um, systems, as well as the level of treatment that they were getting. So after I left that job, I moved to Canton, Ohio, where I worked for Stark County Family Court, and more experience and exposure, again, to the disparities that African-American children in particular were having as it relates to the type of treatment and sentencing, if you will, that they were receiving. Mm -hmm. so the African-American young males in particular were um, being sent to juvenile detention or juvenile prison um, after being diagnosed with conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, um, et cetera. Whereas non-African-American children, predominantly white boys and white females, they were receiving diagnoses of depression and anxiety, some kind of mood disorder, where their sentence was more rehabilitative in terms of getting mental health treatment and support. So th having those experiences is where I decided that I don't want to be an attorney. I want to be able to impact um, the African-American experience and community as it relates to what happens when we find ourselves in these systems. And so it was interesting because at that time, I applied both to law school and to a doctoral program because I was still kind of conflicted. And so I was very curious as to which way I was gonna go and I was going to let the universe decide for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, what happened is I got accepted into both programs. <laughs> so <laughs> the universe wasn't deciding, I had to make the choice. And so I went with my, my spirit and I went ahead and decided to pursue um, my doctorate in clinical psychology. So that's, that was my path. Um, to doing that, and it was highly influenced by Dr. John Queener, who's also a member of the Association of Black Psychologists, who has been my Jenga from the beginning. I had him as a professor in my MFT program, working on my master's degree, and I remember writing a paper on colorism and the impact of colorism um, within the culture, and the feedback that he provided on my paper was, have you ever considered a PhD? And I said, well, absolutely not. Number one, no one has ever had that conversation with me mm -hmm. or um, had it ever entered my mind. Like it wasn't an option. Again, as I said, it was either a medical doctor or a lawyer. Right. So at that juncture is when I started to really think about it. Um, and again, working with him at Minority Behavioral Health Group has really, really um, kind of shaped my path into the psychologist that I am today. So. Okay. Okay, good stuff. Good stuff. I want to go back to something you 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 raised that that piqued an interest in me, which is uh, the disparities in sentencing that you were seeing and how the white constituents were given diagnosis, psycho psychological diagnoses of depression and anxiety. Um, I think is what you said, and that the black clients were giving diagnoses 
that were more harsh in nature, which mm -hmm. then led to um, more harsh sentences. Uh, yes. Can you speak a little bit about that, the nature of that and why you think that occurs and what can be done about it? Yeah, it was very interesting and quite disturbing um, to be aware of. So my role in particular is I would do a lot of the pre-sentence investigations and pre-assessments. Mm -hmm. As part of that process, I would actually read psychological reports of the, the um, juveniles who were on probation or who were facing some kind of um, sentence. Mm -hmm. and so when I would read, and I would be very aware of like the demographic background and what some of those experiences were, um, again, it was very apparent as it relates to, and I would say almost 100% of the time, the African-American males in particular were sent to juvenile detention or the prison system while the um, white um, juveniles were sent to a treatment program. Um, and again, a lot of it was was based on the cultural differences and experiences. I think in terms of how pathology was being conceptualized, how they were thinking about some of the things that were presenting. Again, the, the Black experience is often criminalized. We don't necessarily look at it from context and from cultural experiences or some of the impact of historical injuries and oppression. We look at it as um, criminal behavior. Right. Whereas for the non-white, um, the, the white students or juveniles in particular, um, if they were presenting with like a, an addiction issue or perhaps theft, like some of the crimes or the things that were done were very similar. But again, because of either resources, having money, if you will, able to hire attorneys, um, I think some of that kind of played into it. But also, when I look at the psychological reports that I were reading, it was more so about limited cultural understanding and inclusion that will lend itself to a different diagnosis. So the African-American males in particular that I've done a lot of work with, how they tend to express themselves or show vulnerability is very different. It's sometimes more aggression or anger. Um, and again, that gets over pathologized. Um, they can't say that my anxiety is high because of the things I'm experiencing at home or in the community. It's not likely that they're going to use expression to kind of help people understand. Um, and so again, it just gets limited to criminal behavior. And unfortunately, we see that disparity. And see, this, the reason why I think it's important to highlight this is um, it speaks to why I'm even doing this podcast to begin with, right? Because um, those reports that you were reading, I'm assuming were primarily done by um, white psychologists who um, were supposed to have a, a non-judgmental, non-biased approach to assessing these individuals. Um, but in fact, when one with a cultural um, uh, understanding of who these kids are, when you can look at that report and see that there's some things that are absolutely incorrect and in fact quite different than how other um, students are being assessed, it, it makes it clear that there's a need for a culturally competent psychologist to be doing, to be working with our kids to begin with. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so we, we have to continue to really stress for people the need to seek your mental health treatment from somebody that at least is um, aware of who you are and is going to um, be working with you in a space of respect and honoring um, just what you bring to the table in terms of your culture. Mm. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it raised, so I also um, teach part-time at the University of Akron, um, intelligence testing, which is a psychological testing course. Right, right. I teach in the counseling psych program, and so there's always interesting dialogue about testing. Right. How inappropriate or biased testing might be. And my approach always is, well, it's important for black psychologists in particular to understand testing and to do more testing because again, our interpretation and how that process happens will favor or facilitate a more culturally specific um, process, diagnoses and plan versus when we just use it at face value and we don't consider those things, then yes, it does you know, tend to hurt or you know, not have a favorable outcome mm -hmm. for African American people in general. So, I promote and always encourage the more of us who can actually test and do some of those evaluations, it will actually help us as a community versus saying, well, because the tests are biased, I don't think we should participate in that. Well, we should participate in it because it's up to the clinician to write that report and determine what that interpretation is. And so we have power in that process, but I don't think we always understand it from that perspective. Right. So what would that look like? practically speaking in terms of if we're if we're trying to get this point across to your average consumer that comes in uh, for testing in your practice what does that look like um, put into plain action in a, on a daily basis yeah so and you I do it a lot in my practice um, I do a lot of evaluations um, primarily for court also um, for CSB which is the children's services board here in, in Summit County Akron Ohio. Um, and again, most people are always referring out or requiring a psychological evaluation. Now, here's the other irony to it. Most times they have contracts or are hired by the system requesting it, which means it's already biased or there's already a favorite as it relates to the outcome of that. Sure. Typically, when I get an a evaluation, it's always a um, second opinion. And in that process, I not only explain to the person who's sitting in front of me um, what I'm going to do and why, I also make sure they understand what the limitations are, what some of the biases are, which is why they are challenging the previous report, because again, some of the same instruments um, I'm going to use. And so I help them to understand um, what the process is going to look like and how the interpretation may look different given as I, you know, depending on what happens throughout the assessment process, I just make sure they have that understanding. Um, the most common thing that I see is with the MMPI. Um, the MMPI almost always for um, people of African descent, African Americans who have experienced racism, oppression, community violence, um, trauma, whether it's, you know, genuine trauma or race trauma, they almost always produce a profile that lends itself to either a psychotic disorder or antisocial personality disorder, almost always. Mm. 
you look at the items and you really explore the questions that they endorse and get some of the context as it relates to it, it's, it's trauma-informed. Right. So so they're supposed to have, have that peak, those, those, so, so in terms of breaking this down so that people who aren't psychologists understand the importance of what you just said, mm-hmm. those things that they are endorsing are what? Give, give folks some examples so they understand why that's yes. so important. So items like, um, I think people are out to get me. Mm-hmm. Um, items like, um, I hear or, or see spirits, which is more culturally grounded. Sure, sure. Um, and we, we think people are out to get us a lot. <laughs> Anytime a police officer is behind us in a car, Absolutely. automatically we think, oh, okay, let me tend to two, let me make sure I'm um, not doing anything wrong. So that Absolutely. it's not paranoia, it's a real experience yes. that it's most experience. of us have. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so when most people come in, unfortunately for us, those are the experiences that we come with. And those subscales have maybe six or seven items within them. Mm-hmm. And if you endorse one of them, then you are already, you know, in the clinical range as it relates right. to, you know, what your high skills are, which then again drives the diagnosis. And so the majority of the questions are related to if you think someone is out to get you, if, you know, you think somebody is talking about you or is um, they mean ill harm to you. Mm-hmm questions. And of course, when you think about the African-American experience, that is the collective experience. Right. So when we say yes, that we have that, on these tests that have been developed by white people for white people, it renders a diagnosis or a clinical profile that suggests we are either psychotic, paranoid, or we have antisocial tendencies. Right. And so uh, a white psychologist interpreting this is gonna have a totally different perspective than someone like yourself or myself interpreting this um, and then making an analysis of that interpretation. Absolutely, and I have (laughs) been to court where we have the white psychologist on the stand who is, you know, presenting their findings and why. Then you have me, and again, more times than not, if not 100% of the time, I have a more thorough report, again, because I understand what right. the, the challenges are and what the biases are. So I want to make sure that every angle is covered. Um, and again, so there's some interesting dynamics that play out with that, me being a Black psychologist. So who's more credible, the white psychologist or the Black psychologist? Right, right. Even, so then my credibility and my credentials and things are often attacked. Mm. Um, and I understand this court, but again, because I'm a black psychologist, right, um, using tests, their tests on our people, but it has a more collective, holistic, culturally specific finding summary, if you will, um, the process of, of I, what I have to go through to kind of defend or protect and continue to advocate um, has been very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm but, glad you. I'm glad you're out there yeah. giving them hell with that because <laughs> <laughs> you know they need it's to work awful. It. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So testing is important, and uh-huh. to to your point, I make sure that whoever is sitting in front of me understand that in the process because they're sitting there listening to me. You know. Um, give testimony. And so it's very important for them to understand. So then they can also self-advocate right. themselves. So 
Okay. All right. Good. Good. Now I'm glad we talked about that. It's so vitally important, and and on some not just testing, but on other dimensions as well, which is again why it's important to have that cultural component in this therapeutic process, um, psychologically speaking. We have to have people who understand who we are and, and are advocating in our best interest. That's right. Uh, I'm, so, I'm so glad that you're doing that. Um, say a little more about other things that you're doing in your in your practice and your professional career currently. Yes. So I am actually um, the clinical director at Minority Behavioral Health Group, which is a community mental health agency in Akron, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And again, I um, was introduced to that agency and brought on by Dr. John Queener, who has been my Django throughout my professional development and career. Um, that agency focuses on providing comprehensive, holistic, culturally specific assessment, therapy, prevention services, case management services, et cetera. Um, And in fact, we actually use Dr. Linda James Meyer's work, her theory, optimal conceptual theory, Mm -hmm. subsequent um, therapeutic modality, which is called belief systems analysis. Mm We are actually the only agency, um, per Dr. Myers, um, who's actually putting into practice her theory and therapeutic approach. So not only are we doing a lot of training, um, professional development training and um, training in general on her approach, but we are also in a unique place where we can actually produce some research, look at the outcomes, because that's also one of the challenges. We don't have enough outcomes, so we're up against the evidence-based practice movement. So making sure that we're also um, researching and looking at outcomes, um, because it's very effective. Um, It's something that we do, we understand, um, and it works for our people. So the literature talks about how African-Americans are least likely to engage in therapy, and when they do, they terminate prematurely. Like, that's what the literature tells us. Right. So we have over 600 clients, and we have a waiting list. And one of the challenges we have as an agency is that we can't discharge people because they want to continue on. Mm. So think about what the literature is saying and then the work that we're doing here in Akron, Ohio, there's a discrepancy. And we attribute that to Dr. Meyer's work. Um, Her theory basically talks about how psychopathology, mental health distress is a result of experiencing oppression, all forms of oppression racism, classism, sexism, and et cetera, because we have these experiences within the society that we reside, that's really the challenge as it relates to why we're anxious or depressed or have some of the other um, distress that we have. Um, Her model also speaks to having a worldview that is not consistent with who we are um, is another stressor. So we're constantly fighting to live up to this Eurocentric idea or value system that wasn't intended for us. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, suboptimal. And the more that we endorse that kind of a mindset, then we experience psychological distress at a higher rate. And we have more difficulty with coping. In fact, our coping is typically more addictive types of behaviors. So essentially, what we're doing is trying to help people understand the impact that oppression and having a suboptimal Eurocentric worldview has on them, the collective, the community, the family, them as individuals, and then we help them to move to a more optimal worldview and a more um, 
a higher level of consciousness. And so the more we do that, then we start to see some of the behavioral changes and healthy coping that we want to see. So we targeted not necessarily listening to the details of presenting concerns and pathologizing it, but what we do is we understand it from the context of oppression and historical injuries and help people see how these experiences are shaped by those unfortunate dynamics and then how to maneuver from having a worldview that's been influenced by systems of oppression to a more optimal one. So we go back in time and we, we examine history pre and post enslavement. When we look at pre enslavement, we see how we were thriving as a people, how the collective orientation, higher value on our spiritual selves and et cetera. And then we look at what happened post enslavement where we see a lot of the dysfunction and symptoms. So we help people see that Looking at where the symptom comes from, hopefully will allow them, people, and empower people to say, well, you know, I don't want to, you know, function as slave. I don't want to be a symptom of the enslavement period. I want to do what my ancestors were doing prior to. So when we think about interventions and things we can do to promote an African-centered orientation and belief system, we go back into ancient African times and we see what was happening. So we, we rely on the virtues of Mayat. Um, to kind of help guide and shape behaviors. We also look at... Um, what, um, are, what are the virtues of Ma'at? I'm sorry? What are the virtues of Ma'at? Virtues of Ma'at is a, a moral code system, if you will, that really exemplify order, peace, justice, um, righteousness, propriety, um, balance, order. So there was a system that was in place in terms of how we wanted to be and it guided our behavior, our moral behavior. Okay. So we look at that to kind of help, again, shape behavior. We also um, rely on Nguzu Saba, the Kwanzaa principles um, that were developed in 1966 that kind of helped also instill values. So what are our values and, and how should we be responding as a collective that, again, ultimately promotes an African-centered worldview, which, again, lends itself to more healthy coping and healthy behaviors. So that's the work that we're doing at Minority Behavioral Health Group. So a lot of training, professional development, supervision, consultation. Um, I do practice, although I'm the clinical director and serve more administratively. Um, again, I practice whether I'm doing testing or I actually have a small caseload because it's important to speak to the practice of how Dr. Myers works her um, theory is, is operationalized and what it looks like. And so trying to provide that training um, also kind of helps us um, as black psychologists to have theories and practices that's more grounded in our philosophy. Because again, you know that the things that we've learned in our academic institutions um, are developed for white people, by white people, and they're grounded in Eurocentric values. Mm -hmm. We also know when we use those theories, that's why their literature talks about African-Americans not engaging in services or terminated prematurely. And unfortunately, as I spoke to earlier, are often over pathologized. Right. So making sure we're using theories and therapies that are for us, by us, really puts us in a better situation as it relates to liberating and uplifting our community. I, I really like this. This is this is some some groundbreaking uh, work here. I, I, I like the fact that the therapy and the process of helping people is centered in us. It isn't trying to color in another theory, a Eurocentric theory, 
that really doesn't apply. It's saying, eh, that doesn't work. We're going to develop our own thing that centers us and makes us the centerpiece of what it is we're trying to do. And we're gonna go all the way back historically, and we're gonna bring that forward to contemporary times as well, and we're gonna implement it in a way that allows people to um, make change and, and make healthier decisions in their lives and, and create a reality that they wanna see for themselves. That's right. Very, 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 very important. Can you speak a little bit to, so you talked about the theory of doing that. Mm -hmm. Give me an example of the practical imp implementation of that. Like what does that look like and how is it received? A client comes in and they're dealing with depression or stress on the job or racism. Mm -hmm. How is this, how are you applying this theory to help them get to a better space? Right. So the, the theory, optimal conceptual theory, as I just explained, has the subsequent therapy, which is called belief systems analysis. Um, and it's, it's very process oriented and it's also spirit led. And, and what I mean by that is there's no structure or cookie cutter manualized way or mm -hmm. even preparation. And I, I like to always, you know, share that you don't necessarily prepare for it because you have to be open enough and grounded enough to deal with whatever presents itself in the space when it presents itself, um, which is why it's, it's more spirit-led. And I tell people, and what Dr. Meyer say is, the prerequisites of doing this work is you first have to live by, understand, and, and model and demonstrate it. Because when something shows up in the space, you know how to address it. Mm -hmm. So it's exploratory. The first phase of therapy is really trying to explore. So it's just discussion um, and very direct questions as it relates to how they understand the experiences. Mm -hmm. Because again, what we want to know is if they understand that this is symptomatic of oppression, we want to know if they know that. More times than not, they don't know that. Mm -hmm also want to get an idea of what their beliefs are. What is their worldview? Again, because the theory talks about understanding worldview and shifting that to be a more African-centered one will allow them to make those kinds of changes. And so the questions is more so about values and where they place higher values, what's important to them, and how they see the experiences that they've had. So that is really a more exploratory process. But then the second phase of therapy we actually teach the model. So they are actually exposed. There's a lot of education, a lot of African-centered books that we use as bibliotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm Akbar books on breaking the psychological chains of slavery. We use that a lot. The community of self, we use that a lot because it gives people the education that's important for them to see or kind of combat or understand from context what some of these behaviors are. We yeah, also, people, people are respond, people are receiving that and they're not, they're just like, yeah, this is good stuff and just going with it. <laughs> they, are, they are, which is why, again, we have over 600 clients in a waiting list. And so here's why it's, it's interesting. From a psychological standpoint, it allows them to externalize things they, they have otherwise internalized. Mm -hmm. If they're saying that there's something wrong with me, or I'm unworthy, or my mother or my father or my grandfather, grandparents done these things to me, or because they were this way, it's why I'm that way. Most times that's what we see and what we come in with. 
But when you can not, when you can trace it back to history, where it began, mm-hmm. it allows us to have some compassion for our family members. So we're not disjointed or disconnected at this point. We're more compassionate and forgiving where we can strengthen our relationships. But a lot of times family relationships are hurt because we blame each other for the dynamics that we experience as children growing up, when the reality is, it's all a symptom and function of what happened during pre-enslavement. So people are very receptive to it. And I also think what's important is, so I don't necessarily use um, the language, like, because it's, it's, you don't, if you don't know it, 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 it's off-putting, right? But because I know it enough that I can have a conversation that's going to meet them where they are, and help them explain it, then they, they receive it better. So we'll discuss it for weeks on end, if not a few months, before I actually give them the reading. And then the reading is like, aha. Okay, so you're, so you're not using yeah. all of the technical um, lingo no. that, that we're talking about right now. You're no. breaking it down and having a conversation where people can receive it and it makes sense for them. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I may use the language at the end. Um, so again, something that comes from Dr. Myers' um, model is about having a a thought process that's diunital. It's both and. So it's the complete opposite of black or white, either or, dichotomized thinking. So I would never say, well, you know, that's dichotomized thinking or that's diunital. I wouldn't say right, that. Right. But I would kind of demonstrate what it looks like. So. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we are focused on the negative. So let's just talk about the pandemic. Right now, that's what most clients are are talking about and how horrible this is and how negative it is. And so that's an either or kind of framework, which is, again, increasing anxiety. So one of the things I've been doing is saying, okay, you're right, and I'm going to validate that. But when you sit and you kind of reflect and think about some of the positive things that are coming out of this pandemic, what could you say? And people typically say, oh, I cook more. I spend more time with my kids. It has slowed me down. I can be more intentional about a routine, right? So that's diurnal. If you see it from both and, it is negative, but it's also positive. Essentially, it decreases the anxiety. Mm-hmm. I do it from that perspective. I don't necessarily use the terminology. Um, and again, it depends on the developmental um, phase of who I'm working with, because some people are a little bit more astute and educated and they can receive it and, and want it that way. And most people are not. So it, it also depends on who I'm working with. So you have to know who you're dealing with and make an adjustment based on that. And that's part of being a, a psychologist and being able to kind of intuitively feel what it is that you, so it goes to what you were saying earlier about not having a cookie cutter approach and being able to kind of connect with with who's in front of you in a way that is um, positive. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So let's continue. You you, you jumped into talking about some of the the ways you are dealing with the COVID situation. Um, Mm -hmm. What are some other things that you're seeing relative to that that you think are important to uh, help people understand so that they have a good uh, framework for their mental health. Yeah, which I think is very important because it's like we're living history. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we're living history. So I think it's important, and I've done um, several webinars to help our community and people really understand what is happening and to put it into context. Mm-hmm. And 
that's what I open with. Like we are living history, um, which means our ancestors have been here before. Mm -hmm. It's important for us to understand that our ancestors have been here before, which means, and they have survived. And we know that because we're here. Mm -hmm. What did our ancestors do? to survive the different pandemics, if you will, or the different historical injuries and experiences that we have always been faced with since we've been on this continent. Mm -hmm. So helping people again, very consistent with Dr. Meyer's work, let's go back and examine history to see like, what is this a result of? And then how do we survive it? Um, and again, the other important thing that I think is important is that when we are in crises, we tend to resort back or rely on um, responses or behaviors or interactions that we've been socialized to believe in, which has unhealthy, unbalanced, again, more addictive types of behaviors. So even when you see um, an increase in substance abuse, um, an increase in domestic violence, and an increase in child abuse and neglect, like unfortunately, we are seeing that specific to the African-American community um, since the pandemic has happened. And the reason that is, is because we're in crises. We resort back to how we have been taught to deal with crises. And so reminding people and grounding us culturally. So let's go back and see what this is and what this is about. And let's examine what did our ancestors do. And so again, our ancestors relied on Maya. They relied on, you know, Nguzusaba. They relied on, you know, an African-centered worldview and belief system that is more spiritually grounded. Like these are the things that they did to survive and they did survive. And so how do we hold on or develop or, or create our rituals? How do we hold on to our value system, our belief system? How do we hold on to what it means to be African-centered in the midst of crises? Unfortunately, again, because we've been socialized for years and years and years to think, believe, act, value certain things, it's hard to hold on to that when we're in crises. It's, it's great, it sounds good when we're doing well, right? So when we're doing well, we're more likely to align ourselves with it, but when we're in crises, unfortunately, we deviate. And so just reminding people and really encouraging to make sure when we are in crises, we are more intentional about our rituals. We are more intentional about our values and aligning our interactions and behaviors um, to be consistent with that. We need to be more intentional about understanding what it means to be African-centered and aligning ourselves to exemplify that. And so again, if we understand it from that perspective, always looking at history um, to see what happened, why it happened, and what did we do about it should inform how we are dealing with the current pandemic that we're in. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are some specific coping strategies that you're giving people? Right. So again, I use Mayat a lot. So when we think about Mayat, um, the first virtue is true. A lot of what we have been seeing in the community or on social media and in the media is a lot of false information, um, a lot of myths. People have their own understanding, conspiracy theories about what they think is happening or why, which unfortunately is driving our responses, whether it's anxiety, stress, or unhealthy coping things. So when we think about Mayat, we think about truth. So we want to make sure that we are living our truth. Truth being, we really know what's happening and why. So again, that examination of history, what's going on. We're doing the research to see like what is and how it fits our context. 
Um, and again, when we're talking about truth, we're talking about how do we stay true to who we are in the midst of this crisis. Sure. So, so having some very specific questions or dialogue about what we know is happening and how is that inconsistent or consistent with, with truth. Another so, virtue is... So if the person says, well, um, I believe this theory that uh, it's man-created and it's a process to eliminate a large population of the Black community. Mm -hmm. That's their truth. Mm -hmm. And they're stressed out about that. Yeah. How are Right? So, so we go, again, I don't know how you fact-check that because it's a theory, right? So we, we encourage that you, you fact-check it. But more important, more importantly, if that is your truth, what do you do about it? What would your ancestors do about that? How did they respond to that? What does that mean as it relates to who you are as a person of African descent? Mm -hmm. Not just truth in terms of the information that's being disseminated, but the truth of who we are as a people. Mm -hmm. Again, it should strengthen us and empower us to make healthier decisions about what our response is going to be. Um, would, you, would you encourage them to uh, reduce social media as, as a result of that? Would that be absolutely. one of the practical things that you would say folks should And that's under, that's under balance. Balance okay. is another virtue of my eye. So we want to make sure we have balance. Mm -hmm. Limit the amount of time that you're spending on social media, especially if you are spending an excessive amount of time, given there's not much else we could do. So most people are relying mm -hmm. on social media. But mm -hmm. again, my out would say, make sure we have balance. And so how do you balance all of that kind of negativity or you know, heightened type of information with more balanced information? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things. The other thing as it relates to balance is the things, just balancing out like what you're doing each day in your home. Most people are working from home um, and they have kids at home that they're now homeschooling. So how do we create balance? And then the third one, order how do we get structure and continue to get up have our rituals get dressed act as if we are going to work or going to school leaving a house have a certain area in the house if we are able to where we sit and we do what we need to do for a few hours and then we're done with it so again that's having balance in order so very tangible things that we can do to kind of manage our household in the current dynamics that we're faced with in the pandemic just by looking at my yacht and being able to spell out what that means practically in our homes. Mm -hmm. Is balance even included in terms of um, making sure that you get physical exercise and that you have a diet that is healthy and not going to cause you to um, fall into more spaces of uh, depressed mood or anxiety? Um, yes. All of that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I look at that under balance as well as reciprocity, which is another virtue. When we think about reciprocity, we were given these bodies, right? Mm -hmm. The Lord gave us these bodies. So how do we show appreciation for these bodies that we were given? How do we value it, right? Well, we take care of it. Mm -hmm. We make sure we're doing exercises, we're eating healthy diets, we're taking supplements to strengthen our immune system. Um, we're doing things necessary to protect the body if we get into the unfortunate situation of contracting this virus, like the healthier we are, the more likely we are to, to fight it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I look at that under balance and reciprocity. Mm -hmm, yeah.
So a lot of what you're talking about, I have this um, picture in my office that says, it is the mind that makes the body. And you're focusing on people adjusting the way they think about things so that they can have a better outcome uh, in, in how they're experiencing uh, what's occurring right now. And, That's right. Mm -hmm, as opposed to doom and gloom, what can I do to um, make the most of this? That's right. So for people who, even, even with that, um, there still are people who are experiencing depression or anxiety, or even a loss of, of loved ones, right? Because mm -hmm. there, there, there have been a lot of deaths um, and a lot of sickness. And uh, it's, in those times, it's still difficult to get the mind to <laughs> get over being grieving the loss of a loved one that you weren't able to be there to hold to uh, comfort like that there there's a lot of emotions related to that that uh, people are experiencing mm -hmm. um, any thoughts about how that could be addressed yes very unfortunate um so it's it's, it's loss right it's grief and loss we're we're grieving and we're losing our loved ones our our our, our so, social status, our jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But as it relates to loved ones, first of all, I would say that it's okay to be sad and to be angry and to be all of those things. Um, when I take a diunital perspective, both and, um, also what are some things we can do to celebrate? right? What are some rituals? And so again, I think rituals are very important during this time, especially because we can have the traditional ceremonies that we will have, the traditional celebrations of life, those the ceremonies we have when we lose our loved ones. So not only are we losing our loved ones, but we're also stripped from how we would normally celebrate that. Right. Um, and so making sure we continue to have rituals where you know we're pouring libations or we have our ancestor table or you know we're doing things to kind of celebrate that life mm -hmm. because it's going to be sad it's going to be depressing but the more we can celebrate and have rituals surrounding it, it it brings the balance again there's my eye so we want to be able to balance the negative emotions and reactions that naturally comes with loss but also then what do we do to kind of balance that out and so I would um, highly encourage um, rituals. The other thing too, is when we think about history and historical um, perspective, most of our ancestors, when they lost people, they didn't have bodies, physical bodies, where they could actually celebrate or, you know, bury or, or do some of the things that we see that we are now doing in contemporary times. Mm -hmm. so what did our ancestors do? So again, always going back to history, when, an, when our ancestors dealt with loss and they didn't have physical bodies, what did they do? Right? And again, rituals. And so creating those rituals to kind of help strengthen um, that and balance the emotional impact of it, I think um, helps. And I think um, it's what we're left with. So even if, you know, it's what we're left with. So either we do that or we're left with negative emotions that, again, is not going to be productive or serve as well if we stay there. Okay. Yeah. People have been talking about this isolation that has come about as a result of um, the current, dealing with the current pandemic. Um, share some thoughts about how folks can deal with being isolated and, and 
this sense of disconnection from the community. Yeah. So this is where I think um, social media is a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The blessing is you can continue to connect with family and friends and colleagues through social media platforms. Um, again, we want to make sure that's balanced and that is not just negative information or information that's anxiety provoking, um, but it's also used in a platform where we can continue to connect. Um, making sure we're calling and FaceTiming. So using these, these you know, platforms and all this technology that we all now have to kind of keep the connection going is, is very important. Mm -hmm. So yes, and I, I would like to refrain or try to help us refrain from thinking about it as isolation because again, that creates more anxiety and depression. But if we can say, no, we have just different ways that we have to connect or be more creative, that's Kumba as we think about Nguzu Saba, right? Mm -hmm. How can we be more creative in terms of how we are connecting? So what I'm aware of is most people are having family meetings through Zoom or they have um, social meetings and gatherings through Zoom and some of these other um, platforms. And so we just got to make sure we're being intentional about that. Um, because right now we are limited. Unfortunately, we are in the midst of a pandemic. It is likely safer for us to do social distancing mm -hmm. um, again language is everything so we've been talking here in summit county don't call it distancing call it um spacing again because the mind controls what we do right right spacing right. sounds a little bit more doable and less depressing versus distance right so changing the language help making sure we understand that there are options so again, if we know that there are options and we just have to be a little bit more creative in how we deal with it, kind of helps deal with some of that impact. Okay. All right, good. So one final question here I, I want to I address, which is the psychological impact of how this is affecting the African-American community. Um, as we're looking at the numbers, uh, particularly in, in pockets where we live um, the numbers are astronomical in terms of the cases and the amount of death that is occurring. Um, what are your thoughts about um, the psychological impact that this is having for us? As yeah. A yeah. It's so unfortunate. Um, again, here we are with another disparity. Um, and when we think about just in general, how African-Americans lead the country um, in some of these health disparities or these health conditions, um, here's another that we add to it. And, and what do we attribute that to? Um, so that's, that's a part of it, but the psychological impact. And here's what I think. Number one, when we hear that, so most people think they are being helpful and being preventative. And so all over the news, the media, social media, it's always hitting the Black community, it's hitting the Black community. From a psychological standpoint, the Black community is, again, internalizing these messages, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, must be something wrong with us. We are less than. We are unworthy. We are inferior. Because why does, when something happens, we are hit the most? Right. Right? So from a psychological standpoint, from how we are receiving that as a community, when we're not educated or have, have a, a level of consciousness that allows us to put that into context where we can do something different, mm -hmm. it 
helps us to further internalize the oppression that is causing this. So it's oppression, right? And if we don't understand that it's oppression, then we internalize it, and then there's the psychological impact. So even how that information is being disseminated or communicated or how we are trying to educate our people, if we don't put it into proper context, unfortunately, it's going to be an adverse impact because we think we're doing something helpful when, in fact, we're just heightening the internalized oppression that the African-American community is already experiencing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very, very fine line as it relates to how we share this information so that it's helpful and it's going to result in behavioral change versus doing the opposite. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, this has been absolutely wonderful. I, I, I really appreciate your approach and your being able to discuss and break down the approach and the way um, you go about helping people in our community in a way that it comes from a space of strength and only yeah. I really really like that and I think that's going to be uh, something we're going to be doing more and more of moving forward as we continue to heal and, and bring uh, excellence into the community um, can you give a little bit of information about yourself how people can reach you if they want to uh, contact you and if they're in your area how they can reach out and come in for services or you know um, speaking that you might do Yes. So 90% um, of my time is at the mm -hmm. Behavioral Health Group in Akron, Ohio. We do have a website, www.mbhg.org. My email is tlodge, L-O-D-G-E, at mbhg.org. Um, several trainings um, and the work that we're doing is posted on the website. And we also are on Facebook. Minority Behavioral Health Group is on Facebook. So a lot of the work that I'm doing specifically um, is connected to that um, agency and it's on Facebook as well as um, our website. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, to our listeners, I also want to say that we have um, launched a new initiative on Black Therapy Central. If you will go to that website, blacktherapycentral.com, we have a 10-day journey of healing that can be useful to help um, implement some specific strategies for dealing with some of the stressors and some of the uh, negative emotions that are coming out of this COVID. We're trying to shift the narrative and help us to focus on positives and healing uh, rather than the doom and gloom of the negativity that we're bombarded with by the media every day. So if you go to blacktherapycentral.com, there, there's a link there for you to click and sign up and um, engage in some of the activities that we have people doing worldwide. This is a worldwide, a global initiative that we have launched. And we got people from at least 23 countries so far um, and growing that are participating. So there's strength in numbers. There's a strength in uh, folks coming together and aligning uh, themselves uh, under various principles and doing the same thing with the energy of positivity that brings about change. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, again, Dr. Lodge, we are so grateful to you for blessing us with this wonderful information that you uh, blessed us with today. And we thank our listeners for being here supporting and um, taking in the knowledge and 
um, offering feedback and the questions that you send in that uh, uh, continue to th uh, drive us and help us to continue doing the work that we're doing. So continue to be safe, continue to think critically about your mental health and things that you can do to enhance it. And we'll sign off and say, we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. In closing, I want to remind you to always be a critical thinker as it relates to your mental health and well-being. We always want to inspire you to consciously question your choices to ensure that you are doing those things that bring you happiness and fulfillment. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel and share the information with others who might benefit. Connect with us on Twitter at HeartMindHealer and visit our Facebook and Instagram pages at Alashe Center, A-L-A-S-E Center. Our website is Alashe.net, A-L-A-S-E.net. And feel free to contact us for any consultations or questions you might have. Things that I might be missing. Running too fast to stop to listen